All right, so welcome to the eighth and final step of the Eightfold Path, our last Sunday session together, although, of course, there's a day long, which I'll remind you about again. Oh, and look, a bunch more people are arriving. So it's good. I know it's been a long journey, but we're actually getting to a really interesting step, you know, the concentration step. Sometimes people think concentration is like the whole point, and that's why it's the eighth step of the Eightfold Path, but it isn't. So I'll just leave that dramatic cliffhanger for us um, and ask if you guys uh, just open it up in case anybody has any questions about uh, mindfulness uh, from the previous month that are still lingering. Yeah. I don't know if it's for you or for everybody. So for me, like the months, it was really clear last month because I've been working on mindfulness so much in general that there was sort of, um, in a way, it was less challenge. Like it was ne- less of a jump. Like it was less of a um, like to attend the kinds of things that we we're attending to last month, um, and that we're whatever supposed to be doing all the time. But that last month we were focusing on. And I mean, one of the things I really, one of the things I realized was like, it's much easier for me when I actually have a big chunk of something to do, like something that's really different, something you really kind of sink my teeth into. And it was actually much harder to, um, because I'm sure, I mean, whatever, you know, I mean, there's plenty more mindfulness stuff to do. But because it wasn't as big of a, like there weren't so many like aha kind of things as there were for like the previous month with wise effort. Um, it actually was harder for me to <coughs> to do it. Like I had less intuitiveness than actually than is, all of the other months. This Even is though great. it was the one that I've been doing, like I have less. I don't know if I have less far to go, but I certainly have worked more on that. For right. So this is interesting because you know what I think it's great. It's a great thing to notice. Um, you've noticed that your mind can easily, more easily, grab onto something that you don't understand and want to, not that we completely understand these steps, but you know what I mean, and so something kind of new and fresh. So this is going to be um, relevant in your practice as you go farther and farther along. You can first of all use that quality to keep learning new things, right? Because there's always, I mean, I, I have a lot to learn from where I am. Um, and so you can know that your mind is going to love to grab onto something new and you can like read the next book in the Pali Canon or whatever it is. At the same time, you'll have to be aware that you get bored with things. And you didn't describe boredom, but I'm guessing that, you know, if your mind kind of doesn't focus as easily on stuff that you think you know, that's an interesting thing to notice about your mind. It's just a tendency. Um, yeah, I mean, I've noticed that I knew it with work. Like, I, I've known it in other contexts very yeah, much. Yeah, so, so you're just seeing I it like repeated. on that part of the learning curve. Yeah, like so... What she's describing actually is really relevant for all of us. Is the same patterns that we already know from our life. If you've lived long enough, you know your communication style, you know your work style, you know what happens when you get in conflict, you know, generally speaking, right? If you've lived long enough, you know that. All that same stuff's going to happen on the Eightfold Path. The, we think, oh good, now I'm entering the spiritual realm where like different rules are going to apply, but it's the same mind. <laughs> So uh, it's great that you're seeing your pattern repeated. Yeah, I don't know if that helped, but yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, I when I noticed that I could then, because it's I know that I have more to go. Like so, then it's like okay, 
then the learning is like the steep part of the learning curve is yeah, yeah, so how do you, you like, do this? Yeah. How yeah. do you do this? This is a new thing, even though from a big picture, <coughs> it doesn't look like as big of a thing. But anyway, it was interesting. But I just I that's an interesting I, thing to notice. Yeah. yeah, probably other people have too. And did you have something else? Yeah. Um, you know, when life gets going, like really going, you know, to be mindful, <laughs> um, I had to really kind of think, like, how am I applying this? And what I took away the most from this fold was that um, when performing any action, one performs it with full awareness or clear comprehension. Mm -hmm. So with that was like the key component for me in mindfulness where if a day was like super busy and I knew I had places to be and things I had to do, I had to really um, say this is what I'm doing for X amount of time and that's all I'm doing and that not to let this it's go a to great the next practice. Yep. thing to do. Yeah, that's what the mind time. wants to do. That's mm -hmm. a great practice is just to be present for what you're doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm can go a long way with that. And it's one of those instructions right there in the mindfulness of the body section. Fantastic. I'm glad you no, picked up the part that... <laughs> that is what has gotten me through this past month. And that's a practice that can be done even when we're really, really busy. You're still doing a practice that's advancing the Eightfold Path. It's great. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. All right. Well, let's go ahead and sit then. So, finding a posture that's upright and also relaxed, settling in to your usual sitting posture, finding some stability in the body so that there's not so much effort to hold yourself up, making sure you're kind of balanced on the place where you're sitting. You can close your eyes if you're comfortable doing so. And just allow yourself to soften into the sitting posture, so relaxing the face and the eyes and the eye sockets, all the little muscles around the scalp. even inside the head, relaxing the metaphorical thinking muscle. And down through the shoulders and the arms. Keeping the spine straight and relaxing the shoulders can allow them to actually settle back slightly. They don't round forward. That strains the upper back. And down through the belly area. Letting the belly soften.
softening the hip joints and the groin muscles and allowing yourself to really contact the place where you're sitting, so letting your seat even kind of sink into the cushion of the chair. And then moving into the legs and letting go of any bracing. Also softening the joints, like the knee joints and the ankle joints, all the way into the feet. the body has some bit of stillness, you may feel that the, some of the most prominent sensations are the sensations of breathing. We don't have to do anything with the breath, but just allowing the attention to settle. Onto these very simple sensations, coolness and heat, tingling or movement or the pressure as the lungs fill and the relaxation as they release, the shift of clothing against the skin, just allowing the opening to and exploration of these very simple elemental sensations of breathing. begin to notice that the breath is kind of a whole body phenomenon. There's an energetic exchange that goes beyond just the physical lungs. Even if the breath is very subtle, you can allow awareness to include the sensation of the body sitting, so that you have a sense that the breath is happening in the body. It's kind of part of or happening in conjunction with any other sensations in the body.
you can allow the energy of the breath to slowly begin softening the body. It helps to have a fairly continuous awareness of these simple flowing sensations of in and out breathing. As the body softens and the, the breathing is just flowing however it is, you may notice a feeling of some degree of ease or even joy, a simple non-enthusiastic kind of joy, just a pleasantness to that. And it's fine to notice that and take that into your awareness. It's easeful, it's peaceful to just be continually with the sensations of the breath in the body. Maybe that's even preferable to whatever else the mind could be doing at this moment. Just this.
Gently linking all the parts of the experience to the breath. The breath is in the body. The breath has this pleasant, even joyful aspect. The mind is filled with the intention to stay with the breath. there are any thoughts, you could think about the length of the breath or counting the breath. eighth and final step of the path is wise concentration or actually the um, the word is uh, sama samadhi this one is this on now okay sorry Um, so it's sama samadhi and samadhi is usually translated as concentration but that word has a lot of associations in English, you know, like kind of a one-pointed, powerful focus with a lot of effort. Um, and not all of those are meant by samadhi. So today we're going to explore more carefully what the Buddha meant in this eighth step of the path. 
and we're going to learn what it is and also what it isn't. So this, um, this talk in the first half is going to focus on the type of samadhi that can arise out of continuity of mindfulness. So this can occur both on the cushion, if you happen to be continuously mindfulness, mindful, or it can occur in daily life, as we just heard in that comment right before this meditation, is that we're encouraged to develop mindfulness in all that we do, well, that will lead eventually toward a continuity of mindfulness. So maybe that's the first thing to know about sama samadhi, this last step, is that it can happen both on and off the cushion. It's not suddenly only a cushion practice, now that you get to this last step. Um, I guess I'll add the qualification that uh, when the Buddha is asked at various times in the text to define wise concentration, he does almost invariably give uh, concentrated states that you would get to on the cushion, a particular set of absorptions called the jhana states. But my guess is that... um, He didn't mean for one step of the path to be only on the cushion, and also that um, I've noticed that you can identify many of the same qualities that are needed to do those absorptions in everyday life practice. And so I'm going to help us identify what those are. So I think they prepare the mind to find this this wise concentration when it is on the cushion. And then the uh, second half talk is going to talk more about cushion practice. Okay, so what are the qualities of a mind that's in sama, samadhi? Um, So just as a kind of an overview, the mind is attentive or mindful in a pretty continuous way. It's unified, and it has uh, some degree of happiness. Those are the three main ones, and it also has a wholesome intention. Let's put that one in too. So now I'll go through each of those. So we can notice on the Eightfold Path that concentration arises out of mindfulness. I know they're not totally linear, but as I often say, the order isn't random either. And so we have concentration coming after the mindfulness step. And so it's, I think this is totally relevant, <laughs> is that um, we have this present moment awareness that we're cultivating through our mindfulness practice. And as it gets more and more continuous, the mind feels more and more like it's concentrated. It's just doing what it's doing, as it was as was mentioned earlier. So maybe that's the simplest way to understand wise concentration, is that it arises out of continuity of mindfulness. If our mind is not very continuously mindfulness, we're probably not very concentrated, right? Doesn't that just sound normal from daily life? So you may have noticed this already in practice as you've been cultivating mindfulness. And I know most of us have been cultivating mindfulness longer than just last month. Um, So, you know, as we've been cultivating it in whatever way, you may have noticed already that you have, you know, maybe you're mindful for a little longer before you lose it. Not every day, but, you know, you may have segments where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I was really able to be with that whole episode of, brushing my teeth or whatever it was that we were being mindful of. And it's just sort of naturally extending a little bit longer. That's normal. Um, 
And so, or maybe if you don't have that, you at least notice that you come back faster than you did. You know, it's like, I, I lost mindfulness again, but I'm back after only five minutes instead of five hours. You know, it's, um, we start having more periods where we're mindful throughout the day. So this is the movement toward continuity of mindfulness. And I don't think, you know, we have like continuous mindfulness from waking up to going to sleep until we're, let's say, quite far <laughs> along the path. But it's, um, you know, we can do more and more and it's, you know, you've seen the benefits that come from when it's there. So why not just extend it as, as continuously as we can? So that's the continuity of mindfulness. And then secondly, um, a concentrated mind, which we could also say is uh, composed, that's actually maybe a better word for it even, is somehow unified. And what, what that means is not necessarily that you just have this one single pointed, you know, you're so concentrated walking down the street that you get hit by a car because, you know, you don't see it or whatever. But it's, um, it's that the mind is somehow all gathered toward the same purpose. So to, to give an example from being on the cushion, because we did it during, we, I offered that during the guided meditation, is that all the elements of your experience are gathered around the breath. So, you know, you feel that you feel the breath in your body. So your bodily experience is about breathing. And I said to notice the joy or ease that comes from being mindful of breathing. So your somehow your affective or emotional flavor is associated with the experience of breathing. Any thoughts you have, you can count the breaths if they're kind of busy thoughts and you need them to do something, or you can just notice more generally the length of the breath, or you know, somehow your intention is focused on being with the breath. So it's not like there's no, no differentiation to experience in a unified mind. It's just all gathered around some central thing. After all, the word concentration means with a single center, right? Concentric. So um, now normally, of course, we go through our life and we're sitting on the cushion and our mind is busy and we have pain in our knee but our emotions are really more with that irritating comment that our sister made yesterday, and our thoughts are about the fact that later we have to cook dinner and we don't know what it's going to be yet, and we have people with millions of different dietary restrictions coming, and what, what am I going to make that satisfies all of them? So your thoughts and your emotions and your body and your intention, well, your intention is to, to meditate at that moment, right, are all in four different directions. That is not a unified mind. That's not a concentrated mind. Right? So do you kind of see the quality I'm pointing to with unification? So it doesn't mean that you shut out everything and just have one singular experience, but there is this gathering that can happen. And then um, concentration does go along with joy and happiness. It's really not possible to be angrily concentrated. You can kind of push yourself into limited, brittle kinds of concentration. So I don't raise your hand and tell me that you've done this, but you're wrong, Kim, because I've gotten into concentration by really forcing my mind. You can. It doesn't last very long, and it's not really part of the path to do that to your mind. Um, 
concentration that's part of the path is actually joyful, easeful, and happy. It's one of the um, deepest, deeper kind of happiness than uh, the, the regular pleasures we experience throughout the day. It's much better. Um, and even sort of more ordinary kinds of concentration, a lot of us have experience with in everyday life, like doing an art or a craft or music or sports or whatever it is that we're focused on. Uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean what the Buddha was referring to, but we know that that brings a, 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 a simplicity to the mind and a happiness that goes with it. So it's, it's real. Um, sometimes it's kind of a also a feedback loop, like if you're, if you notice the happiness as you're breathing, and then you'll start to get more concentrated, and then the concentration itself brings even more happiness, because a mind that's simple and doesn't have all those worries uh, is actually very happy. <laughs> it's like, the mind is so happy to not be thinking about all that stuff. So it's like a feedback loop, and then you notice the happiness, and that grows it. So I recommend paying attention to any joy and happiness you have. Concentration practice is slightly different from basic mindfulness practice. If that's what you've mostly learned, sit down, try to focus on the breath. When your mind wanders off, bring it back. You can do that for a long time. It's good. It develops attention, develops continuity of mindfulness. But if you want to really do concentration practice, which is not the same thing, it's it's no longer neutral exactly. You know, you I mean, you don't want to get sort of overboard about it. But if the um, appreciation and joy and sort of feelings of well-being are there, you sh- you're supposed to notice them, actually. You're supposed to feel into them and grow them if you want to develop concentration. And that's totally fine. You're not violating some law of the universe um, by not just sitting there and blandly accepting everything that arrives in your mind. Concentration, you're making a choice to be with the breath or whatever. You, uh, there's an object, usually the breath. Um, and you're making the choice to be there, and you're making the choice to make that a pleasant experience so that your mind will want to keep staying there. It's a particular practice. So that's what we did in the guided meditation. Um, it's interesting that concentration does not have to focus only on pleasant objects. Even though it's very pleasant, you can, I guess I'm talking more about ordinary life, you can get concentrated on things that are not that pleasant. I got very concentrated one time on cleaning a super nasty stove. And I wasn't intending to, but I somehow just got really into it. It's like I got motivated because it was, you know, cleaning is actually very satisfying, right? Because you see the result right away. And so then, I mean, it was a huge, messy stove, but I was like, okay, I got this one corner. I can do the whole thing, you know? And so it was great. And I noticed after some time um, that I was really actually concentrated in a, in a wholesome way, like similar to how I would be on the cushion, except I wasn't. It was very interesting, and it was not pleasant. I can't say it was a pleasant experience. Maybe there were aspects of it that were. But of course, the joy and happiness that arose were pleasant. But those are non-sensual. That's what's called non-sensual happiness. It's not based on the cleanliness of the stove, necessarily. So, you know, in my own life, I can find wise concentration happening in some daily life situations like that, and you may have similar experiences. You can tell if those qualities are there. That's how you would know that it's wise concentration. Yeah, can you uh, speak more about the differentiation between happiness, which is non-sensual, it's not related to sensate? Yeah, it's not arising dependent on 
some stimulus from the outside on your body. Um, so most, a lot of what we experience throughout the day is sensual experience, and there's nothing wrong with it, and there's nothing wrong at all with the pleasant experiences that come through our sense doors, and it's totally fine to enjoy those. Um, so just to be very clear, <laughs> um, but the uh, the the danger of that kind of sense experience is that if we're not mindful of pleasant sensual experiences, um, we are feeding the root of greed. We tend to be greedy about them. And we can accidentally be strengthening that quality. Whereas the non-sensual happiness, which can still be felt in the body, by the way, this is something people have to learn through practice. It's not only, it's not body and mind. That's not the distinction. It's, um, you know, whether or not it's coming from uh, an external stimulation, or if it's coming because your mind is in a good state. So if you're doing, if you're helping somebody, if you're giving, if you're acting ethically, you know, you're aware that you're doing wise speech, there's a pleasant feeling associated with speaking kindly, isn't there? That is non-sensual happiness, and it may feel like warmth in your body can be physical, but it's not coming from a sensual experience, it's coming from something wholesome. It's, it, it arises from wholesomeness. It's the pleasant feeling associated with wholesomeness. That does not feed the underlying tendency to greed. That's the distinction. Um, that's a great question. And the, the experiences I'll talk about in the second Dharma talk, the jhana experiences of deep absorption, are actually felt in the body, but they're non-sensual. You're just sitting on the cushion. <laughs> but they're very amazingly pleasant. Okay, so so there is um, there is unwise concentration. Uh, it turns out, and so this step does have the qualifier of sama of which is actually right or appropriate or complete, not really wise, but we say it that way. There are ones that aren't, um, and so uh, I want to talk about intention during uh, concentration practice. So right concentration. Uh, in right concentration, our mind has not been taken over by greed, hatred, and delusion in any way. So for, um, there are uh, many examples of we might, what we might call concentration in daily life that are not wise concentration. That's why this is a little bit harder realm to practice in than on the cushion. But, well, no, that's not true. You could have greed, hatred, and delusion on the cushion plenty well. But to make it concrete, you know, let's say that you're a pickpocket and you've got somebody targeted and you're trying to get their wallet while they're walking through a busy marketplace. Has anybody been pickpocketed in a busy marketplace somewhere? Somebody, you, you can get really focused on that and that kind of concentration, zeroing in on that and doing it just right so you get the wallet, that's not wise concentration. <laughs> um, but it might feel actually very pleasant. It, has, it could have some of those same qualities, but it doesn't have a good intention behind it. The intention to steal is not good. So that's not wise concentration. Um, so that would be kind of greed-related. Um, we can also have aversion-related problems. So let's say you get really concentrated in doing a work project, and you are really zeroed in, and you're going to get it done. But what's driving you is fear that if you don't get it done, your boss is going to fire you. That's not wise concentration either. You might be very concentrated on getting that work project done, but it's not wise concentration because it's tainted by fear. Or then there's television. We can be very concentrated on the TV. The whole world disappears while we're watching that TV show. 
But if we're not really aware of that, it could just be delusion uh, has taken over the mind. So we're concentrated, but the mind is, is deluded while it's watching that. It's kind of a passive attention flavored by delusion. Uh, the concent- wise concentration includes an active, interested, flexible component, uh, which we don't usually have when we're just taking in a TV show, say. So we have to be aware of the intention that's in the mind. Is my mind uh, in a wholesome state? That will help determine, that's the final determiner of is this actually wise or unwise concentration. So there's, I remember a story of um, Shyla Catherine was talking with someone one time, she's another insight teacher, and she was, she's a big teacher of concentration, so she has all the, um, all these distinctions down very clearly. And somebody was enthusiastically telling her about how she had gotten really focused on um, designing the floor plan for her church, which she was helping to design, and how it was really interesting to figure out this and that, and you know, and she said that she felt because of this, she really understood what almost what jhana would be like on the on the cushion. And Shiloh, who, who has a sort of strict definitions of these things, said, "Well, the difference between that kind of concentration and you know." cushion jhana is that one of them leads to liberation from suffering and one of them leads to a great floor plan. (laughs) 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 So the destination matters also. (laughs) I thought that was pretty good. She knew the woman could handle that comment. (laughs) Um, So there's also, of course, the purpose. So it's it's fine to be concentrated. This is just a little, um, you know, reminder that we're not exactly practicing the concentration that the Buddha was talking about if we spend time every day doing our, our, our craft, our sport, etc. We are cultivating certain qualities of attention in the mind, but only when the mind is directed toward the spiritual path is it actually going to lead to liberation from suffering. So there are conditions that we can put in place. Um, you know, How do we get this kind of concentration? How do we get continuity of mindfulness, unification, joy, happiness, and a good intention, well, of course, we can direct ourselves toward all those things. But there are also um, some specific conditions for uh, how the mind can gather itself up and reach reach some kind of continuity of mindfulness. And the first one is um, ethical conduct. So we know this from the path, actually, is that right? There's the wisdom factors at the beginning, and then there's right speech, action, and livelihood. And then we get to this section with effort, mindfulness, and concentration. The reason why those ethical conduct steps are before that is that they support the unification of the mind leading (coughs) toward that. And it just makes sense, of course, if you're leading a terribly unethical life and doing all kinds of horrible things, you're not going to sit down and have a really peaceful meditation. That's the top-level example that's always given. But it's it's even kind of more direct than that in that there's a, a section where the the teachings where the Buddha has kind of a long set of adjectives that he uses to describe conduct that is excellent, and conduct that is ethical, and it's like untorn, unsplattered, unsplotched, you know, all these kind of, you know, clean, words for clean uh, kind of behavior. And then the last one is conducive to concentration. So, you know, my virtues are untorn, unsplattered, unsplotched, untainted and conducive to concentration. That's not the exact list, but that last part is interesting. You know, it's like, why would you throw that in next to all the things that basically mean clean? Um, 
And it's because he's reminding us of the purpose of ethics, is to help the mind uh, be, cult- be cultivated on the, on the cushion or in concentration. Um, so that's one condition, is that we really need to be acting well in our life. Um, and then the second, the classic way of describing it is that we, we need to let go of the kind of grosser distractions and forces that pull the mind away from being mindful and from being open and from being flexible. And classically, these are called the five hindrances, which some of you have probably heard that list. And it's, um, so these hindrances are singled out by the Buddha as the five qualities that are most likely to distract the mind from being able to be unified and therefore to get all the benefits from concentration and from the path. So the five hindrances are sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and doubt. Any of these sound familiar? So these are, um, yeah, these are very normal qualities of the untrained mind. In fact, they're the main qualities of the completely untrained mind, seems like. And we, um, but there's lots and lots of techniques for working with them, which we've already seen a lot of <laughs> up to now in the path. Um, but I'll just maybe give a little, put a little structure on them. So the sensual desire and ill will are kind of grouped together, and they're at the beginning because they're the really gross uh, tendencies to want and not want, right? So that's the issue at first for the mind, is that it wants things, some things and it doesn't want other things. It's very... Uh, it, it comes in and it looks at experience and says, this part's right and this part isn't right, and I need to have that because it's not present. And it, so it's all that kind of judgment of our experience. Um, that's a big hindrance to uh, the peace, as you can understand, the peace of just being with the breath flowing in and out. It's completely opposed <laughs> to uh, sitting peacefully and feeling the breath coming in and out. So... Um, we work with those initially, Often we're told that's why we do this, this sort of basic mindfulness practice of learning to accept experience, be okay with things, let things settle down, not go chasing off on thoughts that want this or that. So that kind of settles out those first two hindrances of sensual desire and ill will. And when those kind of calm down and we realize, okay, yeah, I'm going to be with this task of sitting here, or even I'm going to be with this task of walking down the street or doing my work or walking through the grocery store, what, or however it is that we're cultivating the concentration, then we get to this, the next pair of hindrances, sloth and torpor and restlessness and worry. So when you settled out the wanting and the not wanting, then the problem you have is the energy level of the mind. You know, is it too tired <laughs> or is it too excited? And th- this is a little more subtle, right, than wanting and not wanting particular things. But then, you know, we all know this one, too. We finally settle down, things are pretty good, we're happy to be sitting, and it's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> asleep. Or, um, or maybe we've let go of the gross wanting and not wanting, but we're still um, busy uh, commenting on experience. Oh, cool. Wow. Am I mindful? Am I doing it? Am I concentrated now? <laughs> you know, the kind of the commentary, or thinking about our views. You know, we don't necessarily want or not want anything, but we're f- formulating our philosophy about, um, you know, the best way to parent or something, or we're formulating our 
strategy for you know doing better at work, something like that. So it's not that we're exactly wanting and not wanting particular things, but we're you know shaping who we are in some way. So this is restlessness. So we have these issues with the restlessness and the sloth and torpor, and so we have to balance those also. And then doubt kind of hangs out by itself as the fifth hindrance. And that one is the one that's actually the most dangerous. I mean, we're going to have the first four in various ways for a long time. Um, but the fifth one is the one that can make you stop practicing. If that voice slips in and says, why are you doing this anyway? I don't think this is really helping you. You've been meditating for months and you don't see any change. Why are you doing this? Um, you know, why don't you just go back to jujitsu like you used to do? Something like that. Um, or, you know, we start doubting these teachings, you know, it's like, why am I paying attention to things that were written down 2,600 years ago in some other part of the world? I don't think that's really relevant for life in the 21st century, especially not in a globalized society, and now we have democracy, and it's very important that we, you know, get our country back on board, and anyway, climate change is going to wipe us all out. This is all part of doubt, <laughs> actually. Um, so, I mean, I'm making a little bit humorous, but the, the thing about doubt is that it masquerades as wisdom. That's the trick of doubt, is that it has very good arguments, kind of lawyer-like arguments, for why you shouldn't be doing this, and why you really need to be doing something else, even though your intention ten minutes ago was to do this. You sat down. It can't really be, you know, completely turned around in ten minutes, can it? But it can. Um, so doubt masquerades as wisdom, and the, the only thing you have to do is recognize it. That immediately ends it. As soon as you say, this is doubt, it's lost its power. But it's very hard to see that sometimes. So there are a lot of techniques for working with these various challenges. But since we don't have a lot of, that's not the aim of this talk, I'll just say that the most important one is mindfulness. And you don't have to have all of these hindrances completely gone before you have anything approaching samadhi, they will be gone completely when you get to the deep absorptions and when you, yeah, but long before that, you can have mindfulness of them. If you are mindful of your ill will, it's not actually hindering your path at that moment. It may still be hindering your concentration, you know, if you're upset with somebody, but as soon as you realize, oh, this is ill will, you are on the path because you're doing right mindfulness. So it's okay. They only These things only hinder you when you aren't aware of them. Then they're hindrances. But as soon as you see them, they're not really hindrances. And as soon as you see through the ill will, probably it'll, you know, if you're not feeding it, it'll just die away eventually. And then you can actually be concentrated. You won't have that hindrance at all. So don't please, please don't get the idea that if any of these are present in any form, you're completely not meditating. It's not true. As soon as you're aware that they're there, that's good enough. I, w I like to tell this story. I've probably even told it here. Um, but I was on a retreat one time with um, one of the teachers who was Winnie Nazarko. And she said, I've always wanted to ask this. It was on the three-month retreat, actually. And we'd been there like two and a half months or something. It was a really, everyone was, had been retreating for a long time, most people. And she said, um, how many people are spending their time mostly in wholesome mind states? And probably like eight people raised their hand, you know, out of dozens. And, and then she said, oh, I thought that's what I thought. But then she reminded us that um, mindfulness is a wholesome mind state. And everybody was very mindful at that point after two and a half months of sitting. 
Um, so if you're, even if the mind is going crazy and having all these thoughts or it's not settled or it's irritated, if you know that, you're actually in a wholesome mind state. So don't worry about it too much that your mind is, well, your mind can do all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and it's, um, it's okay as long as you know about it. So to recap, um, why samadhi includes mindfulness that's fairly continuous and the mind is unified and it's happy and it has a wholesome intention. So it's based on some kind of ethical conduct. So as you can imagine, this state is enormously beneficial both for yourself and for eventually for others. And to have your mind in a state that's gathered together, that's mindful, that's not overrun by hindrances, and that's wholesome. Wow, you know, it doesn't get much better than that. No wonder it feels so good to be, to be somewhat concentrated, even in daily life. Um, you're calm. You know, that's, that's the calmness that you see in people who have practiced for a long time. It comes from this stability of mindfulness. Um, and you can actually uh, lend that to other people. It's said that um, Thich Nhat Hanh, who was a Vietnamese, I think he's still alive, he is a Vietnamese teacher, um, was one of the people who was on one of those boats coming from Vietnam. And he, would, he said that if one person out of a boat of 16 or 17 people is calm, that even if the boat is rocking around and in a dangerous situation, so overloaded, the boat won't capsize, or at least the people won't do things that add to its capsizing, um, because that one person can stabilize the whole group. And it's the same way, just in a, you know, a meeting or some other situation, if one person can uh, keep it together in some sense, it has a big impact on others. It's very it's a gift to the world really to cultivate these qualities. So being calm helps others be calm. You know, we can't say a hundred percent. Others are gonna do what they do, but it helps. It helps. So yeah, a unified mind is very pleasant and it's a good kind of pleasure. But pleasure is not the purpose of concentration. The purpose of concentration is actually to see clearly. It's the um, culmination of the path because it poises the mind for insight. So you can't see very clearly if you're on a ship that's rocking, if you're on one of those boats. Um, it's very hard to get out your you know, telescope and you're going like this. You don't really see that clearly. But if you get on dry land, then you can really see. So that's what concentration does for the mind. You sit down, your mind's everywhere. You can't see anything. You can maybe see that you're not concentrated, um, but if you want to be able to see something like how is the mind causing suffering, and you know what is really the um, the cause of various qualities to come forth or not come forth in the mind, all the tasks we need to do through investigation, you have to be able to see them clearly. So it's at some point on the path you're going to have to gather and calm the mind so that it's poised to be able to see things well. All right, so as always, it's now a chance for you guys to, to talk amongst yourselves. So we have, uh, very nicely, we have 12 people, that's a good number. 
Let's do groups of three. Um, Give groups of three, and I'll give you the the first question. Okay, great. So the first question is, um, share your understanding of how some of the five hindrances operate in your mind and life. You could just pick your favorite hindrance, um, you know, the one that you do the most often, or if you have more than one because they're related, because uh, sometimes hindrances tend to come together, <laughs> you could um, describe that. So some understanding that you've gained, I know we all have experiences with this, of how some of the five hindrances operate in your mind and life. So they are, once again, sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and doubt. So why don't, why doesn't each person just share about that for a short period of time and I'll ring the bell in between and then you'll get a chance to, um, well there's going to be a second question after that. So go ahead with the first person. Thanks. Okay. So, yes, you can ask the question. Sloth and torpor, they're meant to apply, like one is for the mind and one is for the body, but I always forget which is which. Okay. Um, but it, they both mean sluggishness, oh. dragginess, oh. tiredness. Yeah. Can I ask a question about sloth and torpor? Yeah. Um, how do you distinguish, I'm really, because like today I'm falling asleep, and it's because I didn't get enough sleep, but like normally it's not, like how do you distinguish between, because so many people are terribly under Sleep deprived, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's interesting. There are many different kinds of energy, and actually, physical energy um, may or may not actually be related to spiritual energy. Like on retreat, uh, it's possible to sleep four hours a night and be totally awake all day um, just because the system is so much better aligned. So, um, I don't know that, I mean, I know that in just regular daily life, yes, the amount of sleep makes a difference. But what we're encouraged to do in meditation to combat sloth and torpor is that there's a a whole bunch of things you try, like opening your eyes to get more light in, um, standing up, um, you know, you can pull on your ears, I think is one of them. (laughs) You know, there's a bunch of them. You can emphasize the in-breath, sit up straighter, and, you know, get the energy from the spine. And you can do walking instead of sitting. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's recommended. And the last one is if all this doesn't work, you can lie down and take a nap. <laughs> but people do the nap first, that's the problem. So uh, the Buddha understood that it's a complicated thing, how attentive we feel. Um, but, you know, and it could also have to do with how interested you are in what's going on. You know, I've, I remember in college I used to be very energetic when I was talking with my friends and then I'd come into class that I didn't care about and I'd fall asleep. <laughs> you know, it's like, Obviously, it was just because I wasn't interested in that moment. But as soon as class ended, then I was awake again, right? What's the problem? So, you know, um, there's a lot of factors that go into that. So that can help you differentiate. Okay, so um, the second question, I don't want you to only talk about all the hindrances you have. Um, So the second question is, share various ways that you have learned to work with these or to see them more clearly such that they're no longer hindering. So to see them clearly while they're present, even if they're not affected, if you're not, whatever, uh, letting go of them immediately, 
or ways that do actually diminish them actively. And I think we don't need to um, have each person go separately since everybody has the same five hindrances, right? <laughs> There's probably even other hindrances besides that. But you can just share, you know, whichever hindrance comes to mind. Oh, I know for ill will what works for me is, and the next person might say, that's great, and I'm also thinking that for, you know, restlessness, what works for me is, and pretty, and you just build up, go around and around uh, for various strategies, for various hindrances, and if any of them sound interesting, you can write them down, and if you want to try them later, and just see what you can share among yourselves for a few minutes. Right, thanks. Well, I feel very happy that you had so many good solutions. And um, I'm curious. Well, actually, I, first I want to do a little poll. And you can um, you can raise your hand more than once if you uh, talked about more than one. But on that first question about, say something about the hindrances and how they operate in your life, how many people talked about uh, sensual desire as one of theirs? Okay. And how many people talked about ill will as one of theirs? Okay. And uh, sloth and torpor, and restlessness and remorse, okay, that's a popular one, and doubt, okay. I would just like to get a sense of uh, which hindrances are in the room, or at least which ones you guys <laughs> notice. <laughs> yeah, <coughs> okay, that's interesting. So do you have any then... Um, wisdom to share with the group, things that you thought were particularly interesting in terms of uh, solutions or ways to uh, be aware of or work with the hindrances? I have something. Um, yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, it feels good to know that you're not alone. Yeah, you know, exactly. That there's other, like, people that go through the same things. Um, and one of the things, too, that was the last thing that I brought up was the doubt. Mm. Um, and I think I've held on to that just a little bit because um, I know that everything that I'm doing in life and learning, because I want the wisdom, I, I want to have a, a better life, a more beautiful life, right? And to know that when doubt slips in there, that it was just a thought and I didn't fall into the trap. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. And yeah, that's beneficial for me to like uh, say out loud is that that actually happened. Yeah. That the doubt showed up and. But then you saw it. it. Yeah, so it's not hindering you at that moment. That's great. That's very good advice. Thank you. Anything else? Yeah, Andres. I actually talked about an encounter I had this morning that somebody expressed ill will about other people. Um. And my towards me, I mean, it wasn't against me, but about other people, and my natural reaction initially was to run away, to like get away from it. Mm. But then I was, um, I was here yesterday for a day long on equanimity, and you know, so I was trying to be with it, and say, and I said something about, was it when homeless people, and did I feel bad for them? Because many of them don't have help. And she totally changed her tone. Mm. Yeah. And then, it, then a lot of her suffering came out. She started telling me about her suffering. And so I think it really is often um, something underneath it. It's something, it, it's, 
they plan expressing something else yeah. that is not being seen. I think it's in my case as well. Yeah, no, it's just how it is in the mind. That's very good observation, because ill will is an expression of pain in some sense, and it you can only express ill will when you yourself are suffering, right? If you had no suffering, would you express ill will? I don't think so. So the fact that she started then saying about her suffering, and that's kind of like a bonus. It may not happen that way, but it's wonderful that you could meet it, maybe because of what you had just you know, all the energy you'd put into it the day before, or just from all the momentum of your practice over the years. But that's like an example, of, that's a parallel example to the calm person on the boat keeps everybody calm. You know, the person who's willing to just be there can sometimes uh, help get down to what's the, the to suffering underneath. It's beautiful, thank you. All right, well, why don't we take a short break and um, come back in between five and ten minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.